one in four women report experiencing domestic violence in their lifetime, and the real number of those affected may be higher. On this episode, we sit down with Mindy Murphy, president and CEO of the Spring of Tampa Bay, and Courtney Wheel, a domestic violence survivor. We cover so much important ground during our conversation. We talked about the patterns of abusers, how to help loved ones you suspect are being abused, and how to seek help yourself. We discussed what lessons can be learned from the Gabby Petito police video, from the importance of proper training for law enforcement to subtle signs of abuse. This episode does have some moments that are not easy to hear, but it's a conversation that is incredibly important. And we thank you for caring enough to listen. Mindy, we're going to start with you. Let's talk about the history of the spring. It was founded in the 70s, correct? Yep. So uh, in 1976, a group of four women knew someone who uh, was being battered by her husband. And one of them had a spare bedroom in her house. And so the four of them said, we can hide her out in the spare bedroom. We'll help you. And so they did. And then the surviving member of that force whom I spoke to at length said, you know, it was it was like wildfire. So they sheltered this person that they knew and were quickly spread that there was this group of women who were trying to help um, other women who were being battered. And so they started sheltering in their house and quickly outgrew that um, grassroots effort, incorporated as a nonprofit in 1977, formed a board of directors, uh, rented a bungalow, opened the doors for a shelter and a crisis hotline at that point in time. And then from then, it grew bigger and bigger to where we are today with a whole bunch of services to provide um, to survivors and their children. There are so many services. The spring has grown so much since the late 70s, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, let's talk about the mission of the spring and exactly how you fulfill it. Our mission is simply focused on survivors of domestic violence and their children. So we were exclusively about domestic violence, and our mission is to prevent domestic violence, uh, protect victims, and promote change in lives, families, and communities. And so we do that in a variety of ways. Uh, When people think of domestic violence centers, they often think exclusively of a shelter or a hotline. And certainly our, our emergency shelter is one of the most critical pieces, because if a survivor has no other safe option, then the emergency shelter can be the absolute life-saving program and service for them. We also want to provide services that try and prevent domestic violence from ever occurring. And that is not something that we as a center can do by ourselves. It really is a collaborative community effort that really, frankly, centers around um, community efforts to hold people who choose to batter accountable for their actions so that we decrease the likelihood that people in the community are battering. But, you know, that's a long-term goal. And so some of our prevention programs are working with kids in schools, so uh, youth in middle school uh, and high school, to talk about what healthy dating relationships look like frankly, to talk about what healthy friendships look like, because you learn how to be a good partner to someone, um, an an intimate partner to someone, by first being a good friend um, to your friends and being a good family member. And so we have prevention programs, we have intervention programs, we do a lot of advocacy in the community. Why are you personally so passionate about this mission? I started uh, as a very young person. So my earliest memories were actually at the um, PBS station in Kansas City at the age of six, volunteering in the community. And so I've always had a particular interest in children and families. And as I grew older, I was a camp counselor. And then I worked for the Child Abuse Council here in town, which is now called Champions for Children. And so my early career was really focused on on children. When the spring kind of came knocking on my door to say, hey, would you consider leading the organization? 
position as, as its new CEO, I was a little hesitant because I hadn't worked in this space before. I went to sleep that night um, after they'd kind of put that offer out to me. I woke up the next morning and I said, this is like your dream job because the best way to help children is to not just help the kids, but also help their mom because moms are fierce warriors for their kids. And if you can provide supportive services to a mom and help her be the mom that she, she wants to be, and you can help keep those kids safe and you can keep mom safe, you're creating better outcomes for those kids. You're creating better outcomes for your community and for the future of the world. And I've been doing this for nine and a half years. I get to meet incredible survivors and incredible people in the community who are supporting our mission. Is there kind of a face of domestic abuse? Um, Who's most at risk? What kind of person is likely to suffer at the hands of domestic abuse? Well, I mean, I think the short answer to that is anyone can be a victim, right? Um, Domestic violence knows no racial bounds, no economic bounds. Certainly, it's disproportionately something perpetrated against women. But, you know, men also can be victims of domestic violence. Folks in the LGBTQ community um, have high rates of domestic violence and often um, are less likely to seek services because of some of the other inherent challenges challenges they face. I want to dispel the myth that somebody who's a victim of domestic violence is a victim because of something that um, they've done, some sort of deficit of their character. So often we focus on everything about the, the victim and survivor instead of focusing on why we allow people who batter, men who batter, um, to continue their battering and why they're allowed to get away with it in myriad ways in our community. But I think a lot of people, you enter into a relationship and, and batterers are very manipulative and they're very crafty and they're clever and they're very intentional about their grooming of their partner. And so I always say, if I went on a first date with somebody and he punched me or he called me some awful name, probably not going to go out on a second date with him. That's not how it works. You start in the relationship and they build you up and they tell you that you are their everything and that it's just you and your partner against the world and you don't need your family, you don't need your friends, you you just need me and, you know, together we're going to climb mountains, right? They put you up on a pedestal and then once they have you there, they systematically tear you down. So I think an awful lot of survivors start and they've got pretty good self-esteem. You know, they've got dreams and aspirations. By the time their abuser is through with them, they can be devastated and destroyed. And that's where we step in to help build them back up and remind them of that person they were before that abuser conducted his reign of terror. I mean, it's it's like being held hostage um, in your own home, the way that abusers work. And abusers will try to blame everyone but themselves, and they'll try and make it be about, I'm, I got angry or I drink too much. And the reality is abusers every day are making choices. They choose how they're going to abuse, when they're going to abuse, what part of the body they're going to abuse. So it is a conscious choice that someone who batters makes each time and every time. And, and anybody who tells you otherwise is lying to you. In studio with us as well is Courtney Wheel. And I noticed you, I mean, I want to bring you in because I noticed that the entire time that Mindy was speaking about domestic abusers, you were nodding your head up and down. And we want to thank you, first of all, for being here. Will you, would you mind sharing your story with us? Oh, sure, absolutely. And I, and I was. There were so many things you said that were so incredibly accurate. It's like you hear your own story in her words, and so many of us could. I lived at the spring with my daughters. So I was 20 years old. It was the middle of the night when I arrived at the spring with a child in each hand and a little tiny diaper bag and no shoes on one of the children's feet. And I had a cracked skull and a sprained neck and battered face. We showed up at the spring 
via a police car. And we were so fortunate and so lucky that the spring existed. And basically, to reverse it backward, I was in college. I was at USF. I was in pre-med. You know, all of the things I had dreamed about, all the plans that I had made were in place. And I met this person. And what they did was exactly what Mindy said. They wooed me, bought flowers. They romanced me. They would talk with me through the night to watch the sun rise as they sat and listened to every hope and dream that I had. And what was so crazy was how they twisted and turned every insecurity and used that, how they took every single thing that was important to me and took that away from me. But it wasn't at first. At first, it was how much they loved me, how amazing I was, and then they isolated me. In my particular case, he intentionally impregnated me, which was such a crazy thing, but I was just naive. I didn't mm-hmm. know any better. So then I was having a child, and then it was very easy for him to say, choose between your family or the father of your child, knowing that I wanted to be married once, knowing that my father wasn't in my life as a child, and I wanted my children to have their father. And so that was the beginning of the pivot and the beginning of this manipulation. And then it went to a apartment on the second floor and I couldn't walk down the stairs by myself because I might trip and fall. So if he wasn't home, I couldn't leave. And, you know, the fear of what would happen if I got caught doing that. Now there was all kinds of emotional abuse and sexual, like he was out cheating and doing all kinds of things, which I, I was, you know, I was 18 years old. I didn't know any better. I was really naive, unfortunately. And I was supposed to go to the doctor. My baby was past due. It was my first child. And he came home and I said, and he came home in the morning. He had been out all night and he was drunk. And I said, where have you been? I was supposed to be at the doctor already to make sure the baby's okay. He just started screaming at me for for even asking and challenging him and beat me in the face, black and blue. My face was swollen, my lips, my eyes, my whole face. And then we went to Tampa General to have the appointment. And what was so crazy was to walk down the hall with him beside me, to walk into the office, to sit with the nurse, to sit with the doctor, and not one person saying one word. No one asked what happened to my face. No one asked what was wrong. No one asked if I was okay. It was terrifying. Now, this is in 1990. There's a lot more awareness, I feel like, now. There are yes. things in bathrooms. There's things at the, at the doctor's offices. There's a lot more awareness, but in, at this time, there wasn't. So I left the hospital, and baby didn't come for a couple more weeks, and then I had my first child. And within weeks, he was beating me now. I wasn't pregnant anymore. He could beat me. And I thought I was going to be okay. And there wasn't any kind of education. I didn't know anything about the spring at this time. I didn't get to the spring for another year and a half after this. Didn't know anything about what services were out there. Didn't know that I wasn't alone. Didn't know other people were going through something like this and that this wasn't my fault. Like I just was so lost and I didn't have anybody. He had completely isolated me. My dad had come from Montana, picked my daughter and I up. We leave. He, his mom, his dad, and his priest are calling me and begging me to come back. I'll never do this again. We'll go to counseling. All these people, you, your child needs to have her dad, this, that, and the other. I'm up in this weird place with people who are telling me that I can't have a job and have a child. I need to live on welfare to be a good mom. And I was scared and terrified and 19 years old. And I believed him. Mm-hmm. So I came back. And Mindy, is it still one in seven times before someone leaves for good? Yeah, an average of seven, yeah. Seven Up to seven times. times of leaving before you leave for good or are killed are the statistics or have been for quite some time. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's heartbreaking that you go back, but you just, you don't know what you don't know. And I would add too, I mean, I think survivors, there's a reason you fell in love with him. Yet right. most abusers have good qualities. Correct. And if you are a victim, 
you are really just desperately trying to get rid of the bad behaviors of mm-hmm. your partner and you want them to go back to, to the good behaviors. And I mean, right. so yeah. it's, yeah. and women are raised, right? Still today, we are raised to be nurturers, to be forgivers, to be fixers. And so when to your look partner, for the good. <laughs> right, when your partner and your partner's priest and your partner's parents are all saying to you, give them another chance, right? And society says, women, give your people another chance. You can love away, you can pray away uh, the bad behavior. So it it is not a surprise that survivors give their partners second chances. Um, And that was actually one of the things that I wanted to ask you as well, Courtney, if if you don't mind me asking you a personal question, what were the kind of things that your husband at the time would say to you post-abuse? It's a training. When you would get abused, then after the hitting... Mm-hmm. Then they make love to you, okay. and they caress you, and they tell you they love you. It's like it's like training you. Like if you get hit afterward, you're going to get this positive reinforcement mm-hmm. and the apologies. I mean, just all those things, all the things that I wanted to hear about, you know, family. Like that was such a huge thing to me. My daughter having her father in her life, but it was it was being loved. It was truly being loved. I mean, I had grown up in a situation when I was younger that had some issues of not having a lot of support, not having a lot of love in my home as a child. I was yearning for that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he would give me. It worked well. So I come back from Montana and I wasn't back a week and he was kicking me in my stomach. And I said to him, you could have really hurt me. I said, I don't understand. What are you doing? And he said, well, you're not pregnant now. I knew right at that moment that if I didn't get out, like I had to get out. And it took me a year and a half and another child to get out. From that day, it was planning and he knew it. And so he would threaten me. He would tell me in detail how he was going to murder each of my members of my family, what order he would go into my parents' house. I was the oldest. So all my siblings were still at home. He would tell me how he was entering their house, what gun he would use, what method he would kill my parents with and each of my siblings. And he would describe it to me to scare me. So if I left him with the baby... This is what he would do. And if I left him without the baby, he and the baby would be gone to another country and I would never see him again. He has family in different countries. And so he would only leave me alone in the evenings and he would take the vehicle, like really make it to a point where I couldn't get out. He came home one night and wasn't able to find someone to sleep with and violently raped me. And it was to the point of caused damage to me permanently, both in the front and in the back. And and I ended up pregnant with my second child. And uh, I hid that from him for a long time. And actually, when I went to be assessed for the damage, because I bled every time I went to the bathroom for months, that's when they told me I was pregnant. And I didn't tell him, I hid it from him. And when I finally told him, he insisted upon an abortion, which I didn't believe in. And it was the first time I stood up to him. So I always told my oldest daughter, I said, you kept me alive, because Mm -hmm. she kept me from, I'd always think about drinking bleach, which is kind of a crazy thing. But it was like, I didn't know what I could do to take my own life. And yet I didn't want to live in that situation anymore. But I'd look at her and I couldn't leave her with him and I couldn't leave her. So then I told my second one that she was the one that gave me the strength to get out. Sorry. But, and I stood up to him for the first time and he choked me and I was woke up on the ground. There was never probably another nice moment between he and I again. Like there had been a few nice moments here and there, but they were really rare. I mean, I knew from that kicking in the stomach moment, I had to get out and it took that long. But what happened, what was amazing is while I was pregnant with my second child, I was working. This woman who was in college was doing an internship with the spring. So she walks up to me and she said, you know, I hear about this really cool place and tells me this story, not like it was aimed at me. Well, she knew exactly what she was doing because 
if someone would come too close to me, I'd flinch and I'd get scared. And he'd show up with pit bulls at the front door to collect me if I was taking too long to get off work. And like he displayed things and they saw things and people recognized the signals that I was being abused. So she tells me this story and then she tells me about this hotline that she's answering. So it was the days of payphones, and I would sneak on my break to the payphone, and I'd call and tell them what was wrong or what I was going through, and they would talk to me about, this isn't right, you're not doing anything wrong, you don't deserve this. What was really, really cool was talking about making this safety plan, just these ways to be prepared for that opportunity when that golden moment came that finally that I could get away. And There was times family was around. There were times different people were around, but there wasn't a moment that I felt safe. And then it was that night. My second daughter had been born and she was being abused, not physically, but I wasn't allowed to hold her. I wasn't allowed to pick her up. I wasn't allowed to feed her. She was to be left in the crib with a bottle, prep the bottle up. She could be changed, but she was not given any attention or any physical touch. He turned the sister against her and would tell her sister mean things about her and try to talk bad about the baby to this other baby who's one and a half years old. And really, my girls had a strained relationship for a lot of years that they've worked through and really done amazing work. But uh, anyhow, I went to the doctor and the doctor actually this time asked him to leave the room. And they said, your child has failure to thrive syndrome. She won't survive. She's three months old. She hasn't grown. She was still eight, nine pounds. I mean, she was a little tiny and was not growing. And he said, she won't survive if you don't make a change. Yeah. So then it's the middle of the night and he came home and I had opened the door to someone. And because I had opened the door, he went crazy. And then he took my head and slammed it into his knee repeatedly. And that's when he cracked my skull. And I actually saw stars that night. And when I saw that, I went, you're going to die. Your baby's going to die. You're going to die. So when he passed out, it was just the craziest thing because it was like, I really felt like a lion caged and I'm pacing in front of him. And then I went into the girl's room and we went out of a window and my daughter started saying, ducks, mom, ducks. When I opened the door, because there were out of the window, there were ducks. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is whole, like every part of the memory is so vivid. I grabbed a diaper bag once I, and I did, I paced until I knew he was really asleep. He was drunk and he had stripped his clothes off and he was naked and told me to go make the bed. And I took a really long time to make the bed because I knew it was coming. We went out the window, grabbed both babies and I'm running, went straight to my parents' house who are local mm-hmm. and said, I got to go to the spring. No, no, no. You're here. We'll put the car in the garage. I said, he'll be here in the morning. Mm-hmm. He'll be here. We called the spring and they said, go to the police station. So we did. And then the police took us to the shelter. I walk into this shelter in the middle of the night with these two babies, a couple of diapers. I don't even know if I had formula. Didn't have any extra clothes. My little one didn't have shoes. I didn't have anything else. But what was so cool was they immediately attended to us, but they attended to all of our needs. It was like the first thing they did was attend to me medically and took me to the hospital, got everything assessed. And then the next morning there was an attorney there to help me to get an injunction and then there was counseling both for myself independently and in group settings and it was just like it was just this very comprehensive program and plan for me which they didn't know me the day before you know I mean I had talked to them on the phone I'm sure they hoped that I'd call again and I'm sure they hoped that I'd show up but to show up and then have somewhere open their doors, open their arms, and open the services. We lived there for a month, and then after that, we were able to begin getting back on our own feet. But uh, we wouldn't be here today. They got to see behavior modeled very differently because of what we received and the services we received. Well, and obviously, they have a strong and inspiring mom. 
that they look up to. So kudos to you for, for your strength. What ended up happening with your your husband at the time? Well, he wasn't my husband, which was okay. actually a good thing for me gotcha. <laughs> because it, it, it helped with a few things. The judge gave us the injunction. I just distanced myself from him because it was so scary to be near him. I mean, he did a lot of crazy things following up. He would um, run me off the road. They gave him some visitation for a little while where he was supposed to have this monitor visitation. And it was crazy the way that he behaved. I mean, he continually tried to hurt us. And it was it was pretty... Even under supervision. Well, yeah, he wouldn't even allow the supervision. Like, he, would, he wouldn't let that happen. And so didn't have to follow through with letting him see the kids. And then what happened down? the road was he sued me for custody of the kids because I was a single mom. He wasn't giving me any support or giving me any help. And I couldn't afford to do everything that he and his wife who had a whole lot of money could do. And he sued me for custody. And the judge told me she didn't believe there had been abuse and gave him joint custody and gave the kids to him on uh, Mondays and Wednesdays and me on Thursdays and Fridays and every other weekend on Fridays, they had to go home with him. And those three days, I would just have to pray that they would be okay. And they were never hit. They were uh, mentally definitely saw things and definitely were abused. And he used to tell them, you're lucky you aren't boys. Because if you were, I'd probably kill you. And he would abuse the wife. You know, the girls would say, Mom, did Daddy used to hit you and put you in the closet? And that's why you left him? And I'm like, okay, so that's what they're seeing. And he had a gun that he would show them and threaten if they ever said anything. When child services were called on him, he chased them away with a gun, like literally chased them away and intimidated child services. And it was such a strange situation. I dealt with it from the time they were in kindergarten through middle school going back and forth in this huge fight. And finally, what happened? I mean, I think it's different now. I don't think it happens to that degree. I mean, it's no, not... Unfortunately, a, it still does. Yeah and, yeah, and it's heartbreaking that kids are still having to see mm-hmm. that kind of abuse. But my middle daughter, the one who he was never very nice to, she stood up to him and said, I don't want to go anymore. And that was a tide turner. And then after that, the girls were with me more. At this point, my middle daughter has nothing to do with him. And my oldest daughter still, from time to time, she has a soft ear to him, but I didn't have to tell them anything. I didn't have to talk them into not wanting to see him. They totally understood on their own. It's it's remarkable who and where they are considering what they went through. They both spoke publicly and for the spring. They just do so much. And even my son, who is their half-brother, speaks he speaks about bullying and he speaks to young men about self uh, awareness and about being very honest with yourself about who you are and how you're treating your friends and your girlfriends and things of that nature and uh, and I think that getting men involved as well and getting young people involved in what we're doing and talking about it and and saying no more saying it's not okay shining a light in a dark place I I would love to shift the conversation to that um because Mindy you had brought up one of the big aspects of the spring is also prevention. Mm -hmm. And we talked about cultivating friendships first Mm -hmm. among children so that they don't grow up to be abusers, which I would imagine has to be even more of a challenge nowadays with social media being such a huge platform for bullying. And I also want to bring up the Gabby Petito case Mm -hmm. because she was such a young woman And she lost her life. But at the same time, I feel like we can honor her life by speaking to especially our youth about some of of the signs and and some of 
the appropriate ways of having healthy relationships. Right. Well, and I think there's so many things you can unpack about Gabby Petito because there's video and yes. there's both the the body cam footage, but also then, you know, just the videos that they were putting out as they were traveling the country. You know, I think people are shocked because they think, gosh, she's so young. This was a young couple. He seems, you know, he seems like a nice guy, right? They're um, having so much they're fun. Having they're so traveling much fun. the country right. together. Right. And, and we don't know, right? People put their public persona out. They certainly put their public persona out on social media, but that often is masking and hiding what could be incredible tragedy happening behind closed doors. And young people, late teens to early 20s, um, women in that age range are at most at risk for ultimately being murdered by an abusive partner. So it's not unusual that she was so young. We talk about the tragedy that happens, like Gabby Petito or any of the other survivors who have lost their lives, but we probably don't talk enough about what I, for lack of a better term, call the everyday you know, intimate partner violence that is happening all around us People will say to me, I really appreciate your cause. I don't know anyone who's been victimized. Always say to them, yes, you do. You may just not have made yourself a safe person to have that conversation with. And we all can make ourselves safe people to allow our friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers the space to bravely share what might be going on that they've been hiding. Because again, Our society chooses to blame victims. They choose to shame victims. They choose to make it all about the victim and survivor's choices rather than focusing on the person who we should be focusing on, which is the abuser. And when you listen to Courtney's story, while each survivor of domestic violence has a unique story, there are common themes. And some of those common themes are his use of a system. So after the relationship, after she successfully fled, turning to the court system or the child welfare system as a way to continue to abuse and batter her and to continue to victimize and cause terror with children. That happens to almost every survivor that I know. People say, why doesn't she leave? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons, if you have kids in common, is you're incredibly concerned about your children's, not just their physical safety, but their emotional safety. If you stay in that relationship, at least you have some control over what's happening to your kids. Once you walk away from that relationship, so often the system says, well, he may have been a bad partner, but he's still a great dad and he should have rights and he should get to see those kids. I would say very strongly to the world that definitionally, if you are abusing and battering the partner who has is the mother of your children, by definition, you are not a good dad. There is no way you can be a good dad and batter your children's mother. It's just impossible. But that's what society says. And so, you know, you're put into this incredibly uncomfortable position of you've left the relationship. If you had your way, you'd have nothing to do with your ex-partner who's terrorized you and and hurt you and and harmed you in so many ways. And yet you're being told you got to co-parent. So then you're trying to co-parent in a healthy way and not bash your partner and kind of let your kids figure that out on their own. But your partner is actively trying to use that system to continue terrorizing you. So, I mean, I think that plays out in so many survivors with kids in common with their partner. Some of the other things, uh, you know, isolating, coming, showing, up at work when you were talking about that, right? Abusers show up at their partner's workplace, incessantly call or show up unannounced um, to the point where part of their intent is to get their partner fired. Because if their partner's fired and has no income of their own and no outside job, they're isolated again. So each person's story is unique, but there are so many tactics that batterers use to control their partners that are almost universal. And you said something about Gabby, and then you asked me what happened to my abuser. And I won't forget the video that she's sitting in the truck and they're asking her what happened and if she'd been hit. And it takes me back to when I downplayed the abuse and when I didn't file charges and when I did things I didn't do 
that had I done would have made my situation better Mm -hmm. and things she didn't do that I wish she had done. And I just wished as I watched her that she would say what had happened, that she would have asked for help. And now she's gone. And I mean, and the flip side of that is you've got a very young um, woman. You're several thousand miles from your home. You're in the middle of the wilderness. The only person you know in this wilderness is, is your partner. You're in a camper van. You've been pulled over by law enforcement. We don't know what he said to her as yep. the law enforcement lights were flashing behind. We don't know the threats he may have made. Yeah. Um, we certainly know that probably, like many survivors, you know, she had been trained to minimize his part and to take responsibility for, for everything that she did. The one thing I will say is when law enforcement shows up, often a, a survivor of domestic violence, a victim, will be painfully honest about what she did or didn't do. She will be disheveled and distraught, as Gabby was. The batterer will be calm, cool, collected because he's in control. Um, and he'll take no responsibility or accountability, which is kind of what you saw play out in this situation. I mean, he was putting all the blame squarely on her. You know, she was being very transparent in what she did. They put words towards the end of that hour and 17 minute traffic stop. You know, they actually said to her, do you want me to tell Brian that you love him and you miss him and you'll see him tomorrow? Hmm. And she looked off in the distance and she was thinking about it for a second. And rather than letting her think, the law enforcement officer stopped it, stepped in and said, do you want me to tell you know him this, this, and this? So he goes over and says to Brian, she, you know, she wants you to know that she loves you, she misses you, she'll see you tomorrow. I'm like, she didn't say that. Hmm. Um, and what she did say is, can you make sure that he has his phone charger? Because, you know, she's got to have a way to communicate because they're literally thousands of miles away. So there's a lot of stuff that went on. Um, There were some good moments of law enforcement, but there were some huge missed opportunities, particularly when about three minutes into the stop, she describes how Brian put and she, she uses her hands and puts them around her face and says, he grabbed me by the face. If I'm law enforcement, that is a perfect opportunity to say, has Has your partner ever grabbed you by the face before? Has he put his hands around your neck? Has he ever attempted to restrict your airflow? If a partner is restricting airflow or attempting to, you know, a lot of times we use the term choke, but it's, you know, strangle. If they're Mm -hmm. attempting to strangle you or stuff something in your mouth or, you know, shove you up against a pillow so that you can't breathe, that is one of the highest risk factors for potential lethality. So the fact that she's telling law enforcement that he had his hands around her face, they should have asked the question, has he done that before? Because if he's done it before, that would be very triggering if you're a victim and he's grabbed you by the face in this, you know, 15 minutes before they pull him over. It would explain a lot of her defensive behavior. Do you find that, since we're talking about this particular incident, do you find that that is the norm when it comes to police officers and domestic violence victims? Or is this an isolated case where they clearly needed better training? I think, I think, and you know, and I can't, I can't speak for the entire, you know, world. Right. But, but my best guess, my experience has been, we have some incredible law enforcement officers, and we partner very closely with law enforcement, and there have been some amazing efforts made by law enforcement um, to help survivors. And there have been some epic failures Mm -hmm. made by law enforcement, um, some huge missed opportunities. So I think just like the rest of us, as, as, you know, humans, we're a mixed bag. And I would say that's the same thing with law enforcement. But certainly, I do not believe there is enough training prior to to 9-11 and the shift to really kind of homeland security and focusing on domestic terrorism. There was about 10 times the amount of training for domestic violence for law enforcement um, as there is today. You know, there's only so many hours in a day. And so some of that attention was shifted. it's never been restored. So I do feel like there's 
more opportunity for domestic violence um, training, both at the beginning of your career as a law enforcement officer, but then you need regular ongoing training. And I will say we have a coordinated community response here locally where we've been making um, some really amazing traction with our law enforcement partners and adding some training back and doing some like short video presentations that they can watch in their squad cars. But there's more that we can do. These are frequent calls. There's not probably a day that goes by that law enforcement isn't being called out to domestic violence incidents in our community and in any community in America. And certainly if you've got that level of frequency, you should probably have some really robust training. I can only assume that during the COVID-19 pandemic, with people being Mm -hmm. isolated at home even more, that this became an even greater problem within our community. Yeah. So what we really have seen that has been alarming is the escalation. And for lack of a better term, we've kind of been referring to it it as sadistic levels of violence. We have a a two-person high-risk team that actually works embeds with law enforcement and reviews calls victims make or somebody makes um, for 911 service around a, a domestic violence incident. When we did a comparison of the cases that we reviewed, the consistent increase over the pandemic and the use of weapons other than only your hands, it was about almost a 20% increase. So not only are survivors now being battered by their partner's fists and, you know, um, and attempted strangulation, which is scary in and of itself. But the batters are also picking up not only guns and knives, um, but also weapons of opportunity. So the claw hammer that they use for work or the baseball bat that's hanging by the door because they play softball on Sundays. They are anything picking up bricks, anything in the kitchen, you know, paperweight. They are picking up objects and battering their partners. And that's incredibly dangerous. It can have lasting effects on the survivor, even if, if he doesn't kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, battering around the head, that trauma, we haven't done enough to talk about the trauma of, of restricting airflow, so strangulation, but also just battering around the head and the long-term significant health impacts that, that it will have on a survivor's life. The um, survivor's risks for really adverse medical um, challenges as the years progress are enormous, and they result from that, those repeated harms that are being done by batterers. One thing Mindy said earlier when she said that the batter is planning mm-hmm. when they're going to hit again, what they're going to, and also where they're going to hit. Mm-hmm. He would hit me in my hairline and under my clothing line because those things would hide; those bruises would hide. So nobody at work would mm-hmm. be right. able to see the so abuse in the pandemic. You don't have to hide those bruises mm-hmm. the way that you did. You know, and he told me that that was why he hit me in the head. Right. That was why he would hit me in those different areas. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, it, you know, it is very calculated. Or, um, or abusers will um, drink with intention and say, right, because they, they want to be able to blame. Oh, it's the alcohol. Right. Um, but they will literally get drunk with the express purpose if I'm getting drunk so that. I'm I'm giving myself permission to batter my partner. And the reality is there are plenty of people who struggle with with sobriety or with alcoholism who would not harm a fly. So alcohol does not give you permission to do anything that you weren't already planning to do. And so, you know, just the ways, the insidious ways in which um, batterers will put the blame on anything but themselves when it is an incredibly calculated choice. Every day they get up, and the reason that they make these choices is because they work. And sometimes they don't have to use a lot of violence. They can beat the crap out of their partner just one time Mm -hmm. um, and then refer back to it. Remember last March... And you can bet the survivor remembers last March and doesn't want to get a beating like that again. So, so they are employing every tactic in their arsenal with the express purpose of getting her to cook dinner when he wants it, give him sex at right. any time of day or night, whether she is interested or not. I mean, everything is designed with a purpose to meet his needs because 
his needs are the only needs that need to be met in that household. And I'm, dogs, dogs as well. Yeah. They, they beat the animals. Yeah. He'd beat the animal to show me. And you talk about animal abuse. I mean, there's such a huge correlation between animal abuse and intimate partner violence as well as uh, child abuse. But, you know, I talked, uh, we'll never forget this, talking to a survivor one time, and she was relaying how her brave, brave, incredibly brave decision to flee her abusive husband was after he made she and her eight-year-old daughter sit down on the sofa, picked up their cat, and strangled the cat to death. She's like, I've you know, I've got to get out of here. Because what he's saying is, I can kill you in, next. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can kill you anytime yeah. I want to. I just wanted to make a mention because I know that, you know, when you have a child, that's a very difficult thing to decide to pick up your mm-hmm. life and leave a home. But there are also a lot of domestic violence survivors that won't leave a home because of an attachment to a pet as well. Right. Um, so I just wanted to make a quick mention with the spring, you also assist in yes. those situations as well, correct? Yes. Yeah. So we have a um, we have a temporary kennel facility on site and um, both for, for dogs and for cats and all critters. I mean, we've had birds, we've had lizards. We once sheltered a horse, not on site, but made arrangements. (laughs) So we have uh, temporary facilities, and then we partner with um, Humane Society and some area veterinarians. We make arrangements, so you bring your animal in with you to shelter, and then we provide shelter for your animal. We provide veterinary care. We've we've paid for surgeries for animals before. We make sure that they are groomed, that they have all their food they need, that they have toys, Um, and then the family gets reunited with with their um, furry loved one when, when they're ready to leave. For, like, the little critters, they often stay on site at shelter. We don't have the capacity to have all of the dogs on site for the duration just because we're kind of landlocked. Um, But some of the domestic violence centers in our region actually have enough land that they can actually have an on-site kennel where the animal can stay full-time. But we want to reduce barriers. Nobody should have to make a decision, uh, you know, do I leave behind my beloved pet and potentially have them face harm, or do I stay and potentially face harm myself? So we want to reduce that barrier, and we did that in 2009, and and most of the domestic violence centers have done so subsequently. Let's talk about leaving a situation. Um, And before we do, there was one question that I've been wanting to ask is you had mentioned earlier about friends and family making themselves available Mm -hmm. to domestic violence survivors. You know, what are some things that folks can do? I'll start and then I'll let you. Um, I I think the most important thing is if someone bravely shares something with you, believe them. And don't participate in minimizing because too often somebody introduces just probably what is the tip of the iceberg because they're trying to feel out what's going to happen if they share. And you will shut them down so fast if you immediately pounce and say, oh, I'm, you know, I don't think he really meant to do that. Maybe you're, you know, reading too much into that. So if somebody bravely shares, believe them, um, don't minimize. The other really important thing is if you suspect something's going on, Don't go full bore into saying he is an awful human being. You know, you need to leave him tomorrow, right? That's power and control. You're you're now doing the same thing he's doing, trying to control. You need to say to somebody you suspect is being abused. You know, I noticed last night that John was so belittling and he was making jokes at your expense. And he, you know, was talking about how you didn't look good in your outfit. Whatever it was that you saw that's kind of concerning to you, name the behavior. Mm -hmm. And then say, you know what? And that's not fair. You are a good person. You don't deserve to have somebody treat you like that. And I'm concerned. And then stop. Mm -hmm. Because she may not be ready to talk, but you've planted a seed that you've noticed behavior and that 
you're someone that she could come to and talk further. So I think that that's really important. You don't globally condemn the partner, right? Because that's going to create defensiveness on the part of this, uh, of the victim survivor. But instead, you name that bad behavior that you're seeing and you let them know, I, I see this and I'm here for you. Batterers want to isolate from anyone who can provide assistance or be a counterpoint to psychological and emotional abuse that, that a survivor is experiencing. So, so often as a friend or family member, you step in and you say, I don't like this. I want to be here for you. But if they don't leave in a week or two weeks or, you know, then you're like, I am done with you. I can't do this. Right. And you walk away and he's one again. So you may need to, to step away a little bit, but but say that door is always open. I can't be, I can't hang out with you every week because I just don't agree with what's going on. But I'm here for you if you want to get together on your own, when you want to talk. You made so many good points. Like People will get to a point where my parents were like, okay, you're not going to leave him, then we're not going to be there for you. It's him or us. Hmm. So I was isolated, which is exactly what he wanted. Again, the same behavior. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. If I get a phone call, and I get phone calls all the time, mm-hmm. Mindy, I'll get... People who say, I have this friend, will you talk to her? And I'll listen, but then I always refer them to the hotline. It's 247-247-SAFE, S-A-F-E. So I could memorize that, and I use that phone number. Most people aren't equipped to handle the situation. And so for me personally, making the phone call, telling them what was going on, and having this person who is trained and equipped, that hotline, I mean, I called that hotline Mm -hmm. for no less than six months. That hotline saved our life. Prior to working at the spring, right, I was in the child abuse world, but I was completely unaware of domestic violence, right? I would have been one of those people. I don't think I know anyone, right? Now I can look back, right? I'm so much better educated and I can see all of the people that I knew in my childhood who I was like, oh, right? You know, you you begin to reflect on missed opportunities just because of lack of, of knowledge. But I also wasn't making myself a safe person to disclose. I took the job at the spring. And within weeks, it was like the floodgates. I had friends that I'd known for a long time disclosing awful things that had happened that they'd witnessed as children in a violent relationship because I was suddenly a safe person to disclose to. I mean, I'll never forget one one of my friends was married to an attorney and seemed like a decent human being. He was violently raping her, and it took her... Her plan, to Courtney's point, was like a two-year plan to safely leave with herself and her kid. Survivors do incredible things to keep their children safe and to keep themselves safe. From the outside looking in, you don't always realize what they're doing. There's an opportunity, instead of judging, to ask. There's a strategy behind everything with the goal of trying to keep themselves alive and keep their kid alive while figuring out how they can safely exit. And, you know, we don't talk enough about the fact that 98 to 99 percent of survivors of domestic violence are also financially abused, even if they're working. In Courtney's case, she was working. I guarantee you, I don't know that I've ever asked you this, but I'm sure he was controlling your money. So, right. So the paycheck comes in. But, you know, we've got it. We don't need two accounts. We've got a joint account. We don't need two cars. Right. That's another famous tactic of an abuser. You fall in love. Why don't we sell one car? We only need one car payment. Um, We'll have one car. I'll drop you off at work in the morning on the way into my job. Two weeks after you sell your car, you know, one day you get up and he's supposed to be taking you to work. He's like, I don't know why you think I'm going to drive you to work, right? It's like shut down your avenue to work. Now you've lost your job. So the economic harms are pretty significant. There are lots of ways in which a survivor is trying to put together an economic plan, 
a safe plan for their children, a safe plan for themselves to be able to exit that relationship. And we do not do enough to honor the bravery that survivors approach exiting a relationship because it is inherently dangerous to leave. And it's even more dangerous if you're not working with a center like The Spring. We are one of 41 certified domestic violence centers in the state of Florida. There are about a dozen of us in the Tampa Bay area. Every county has a domestic violence center that provides free services. Letting else help you safety plan and figure out how to safely exit the relationship decreases the likelihood that you're going to be killed when you leave. And having a plan, just having a plan, is this light at the end of the tunnel? Like I said, I knew I was going to get out. 15 months it took for me to get out. Once the phone calls with the spring started and creating a plan, I could withstand what was going on because I knew what was going to happen. I knew all I had to do was stay alive. If I could stay alive and keep my kids alive, I used to fantasize about being able to walk outside. All I want to do is be able to take a walk outside, not live on a second story apartment, but be outside and take a walk and be able to breathe and not have someone watch over my shoulder. And so this plan was constantly in my head. There was this possibility. You know, Courtney, she was a prisoner in her own home and there were consequences for her stepping out of line. And so it was figuring out what risks can I take to incrementally increase my likelihood that I'm going to be able to escape and get free. I think about people whose experience I, I know about having been prisoners of war, talking about the little things that you did day in, day out with your goal of escape and freedom. It's really no different for a lot of survivors, but it's happening inside a house and it's happening with someone who said that they loved you and now they're terrorizing you. We're survivor focused and empowerment based. And that means that, you know, we, we honor the survivor. We are experts in the provision of safety planning. We're experts in connecting to resources. We're experts at listening. Um, But the survivor is an expert in her own life and her own story. And so we honor the survivor by being alongside her, not telling her what to do, but saying, tell us what you think you should do. You know, where do you need help? Where do you need resource connections? Um, And then empowering her to begin to make decisions again, because part of abuse is stripping away the ability to make decisions for yourself or to make decisions um, for your kiddos. And it's restoring some of that decision making. So, you know, our nine person legal team um, that provides free legal representation around injunctions for protection and dependency matters now, our attorneys talk all the time. Sometimes you can't get the survivor exactly what they want legally because maybe it doesn't meet um, the legal parameters, but getting the survivor some sort of win in court can be one of the most empowering things because it's allowing her to take back control of the situation and to have a win, to have right. a victory and say, you know what, you've been controlling me long enough. I'm not going to allow you to continue controlling me. And I've got a system and I've got an advocate now that's supporting me and standing behind me and standing beside me and giving me the little push that I need and giving me the next step and the resource for that next step. So it's that incremental building back up what was destroyed to the point where the survivor can say, this is it. I've got dreams for my future again. I've got a plan. And hey, spring advocates, how can you help me you know, make that plan a reality? How can we as a community get involved in helping to prevent domestic violence and also supporting the spring? I mean, you got to have conversations about this and recognizing that, you know, there's no one that's listening to this podcast who doesn't know someone who's been a victim of domestic violence. There's just it's just impossible. You may not know that you know someone. So start with that idea 
that, you know, one in four women will experience domestic violence in their lifetimes and that, you know, significant numbers of kids are growing up in households that are unsafe. So start with a conversation and then have that conversation lead to action. And that action could be donating your gently used or even brand new stuff um, to our thrift store donation center, where we make sure that survivors, when they're leaving shelter and they're moving into their own place, that they have the pots and pans and the sofas and the beds and and the clothing that their kids need. So you can donate if you're one of those people who I want to make sure this stuff is going to a survivor. You can take it to our donation center. If you want to be really awesome, you can donate merchandise and you can also donate some money to help keep our doors open. You can volunteer your time at our thrift store and donation center. So there are a lot of ways to support your local domestic violence center, but I think it starts with conversations and it starts with conversations with your kids. So parents need to talk to both their boys and their girls about healthy relationships, right? If someone is telling you that they love you, they sure better be showing that by respecting you. And just because you're in a relationship does not mean that you have to have the same interests and you have to do everything together. You're two distinct people in a relationship, which means you can have your own friends, you can have your own activities. You're not made whole by this this partner, right? You should be whole in yourself and your partner should be whole in themselves and you come together and your relationship makes life even better. And anyone who's telling you that they need your passwords to your phone, they need to know where you all are at all times, you shouldn't be spending time with your friends and family because you should only be spending time with them, run for the hills. Have that open door policy to help somebody if somebody is in need without judgment because the judgment just gets in the way. And then the spring thrift store, it's great that you said that because we donate everything there, but we did, we came without anything on our backs, no shoes on the baby's feet. You know, literally we got clothing, we got vouchers. I don't know if we still use vouchers, but we got to go into the stores and get what we needed. And then when we left, we got a couch from (laughs) the one, you know, from the spring because we didn't have things. We give toys at Christmas time mm-hmm. because yeah. the kids actually come in and shop for their moms and the moms come in and shop for unwrapped toys and then they wrap the toy and they gift their child with a right. toy from them that they chose that fits their child's needs. But, you know, anything that we can do to give back, we felt like if there was a way for us to help, one, with mm-hmm. immediate need of survivors and then two, just with the education, just with the mm-hmm. awareness, you know, talking about it, just what right. you're doing today, you know, thank you, because yeah. this is so important, because this plants the seeds to help people become yeah. survivors. And I think, you know, I mean, if, if women, you know, women, we, we are fierce, and we organize well, and we get things done. And if we could solve this problem on our own, we would have. I love the work of Jackson Katz. He's an incredible um, national and international educator, and his work is around engaging men and boys to end gender-based violence. He has a wonderful TED Talk that you could watch together as a family. It's about 17 minutes, so Jackson Katz, K-A-T-Z. But, you know, he also is very clear when he's speaking. He said, domestic violence is not a women's issue, it's a men's issue. Because, again, while men can be victims, disproportionately the perpetrators of domestic violence are almost overwhelmingly men. And they perpetrate against uh, women. They perpetrate against other men. They perpetrate against children. And so if you're a man listening to this, my intent is not to to bash men. I have an almost 23-year-old son, and he is the light of my life. And some of my closest friends in this earth are men. So um, men are awesome. Men, you have a particular um, opportunity to help end gender-based violence, and you can do so by interrupting the bad behavior that a very small portion of men perpetrate. Most men are decent, but 
many men ignore the bad behavior of of the few. And so when a man is on the golf course with you and he is making fun of his wife and disparaging her, you can interrupt that and say, look, that's not cool. I don't talk about my wife that way. Why would you be doing that? Mm -hmm. Your wife is lovely. Interrupt that bad behavior in locker rooms, on sports fields. Call out your friends. If you see a friend who is abusing his partner, say, that is not cool. You know, I don't want to abandon you as a friend, but I'm not going to tolerate that behavior. And I will happily be by your side if you want to seek some help. So men, you have the most incredible power in this, frankly, to decrease the levels of violence directed at women and children in our community. That's a really strong statement. Thank you so much, Mindy. And as we start to wrap up here a little bit, you know, a strong statement towards men And Courtney, I would love your perspective. What is a message that you have for perhaps a woman who is right now in the middle of a domestic violence situation? What advice would you have for her? It's a tough question just because it brings such emotion. Uh, I love what my daughter said at the very end of when we spoke to the spring. And she said, everybody say this with me. And she said, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And And this entire room of 500 people repeated that. And she said that that was what she wanted me to know. So I would just say, find a minute to look in the mirror. Find a minute to remember the little girl that you were. Remember what your dreams were. Find a minute to remember that you're loved, that you're worth it, that there's something so important in you. And whether it's looking in your child's eyes and finding your worth there, whether it's looking in a friend's eyes, whether it's remembering the way that your mother loved you, whatever it is that reminds you who you are and that you're important. And if you can just find a way to wrap your arms around that part of you, around your heart, around that part of you that's important and special, you can find the courage and the strength to begin the process of getting your life back. And it's never too late to get your life back. And you've never deserved anything that you've gone through. And it doesn't matter if you burn every dinner or whether your house is atrocious mess. None of that matters. It doesn't mean you deserve to be belittled, berated, to be beat, to be talked down to, to be sexually abused, to not have any rights financially. You do have the right to go for a walk outside. You do have the right to have freedom, to have friends, to have choices. And so if those things are being impeded, then look in the mirror and find yourself again. Somehow find a little glimpse and then know that Mindy does what she does. I do what I do. My kids do what we do. You're doing what you're doing today because there are people who care. There are so many people who I've gone to and said, will you help me do something for domestic violence survivors? And people say, yes, what can we do and how can we help? And those people are loving those women sitting in a situation right now that seems hopeless and that seems like there is absolutely no way out. There are cheerleaders on the outside waiting for you to emerge to support you and love you. Pick up the phone and call the spring and hear that voice, that kind, kind voice on the other side of the phone who is there to help you and rebuild and get to the point where you can step outside, feel the sun on your face again. And get a hug from somebody who wants nothing back from you, but to love you and to lift you up. And then that will give you the ability to love yourself again and to take care and love the people around you. Because if you're gone, who's going to do that? Mindy, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thank you for everything you and The Spring are doing. And um, Courtney, thank you so much for being so strong and so courageous. Thank you for sharing your story, for inspiring other women out there 
who may be listening to this message, and thank you for your continued work to uplift other domestic violence survivors. You are an incredible person. So thank thank you. you, (laughs) Thank you so much for being here today. Um, And thank you both so much for joining us on our Be More Unstoppable podcast. You're welcome. Thank Thank you. you. For more information about how to seek help from The Spring or for ways you can help support their mission, please visit thespring.org. Their 24-hour crisis hotline is 813-247-SAFE. For anyone outside the Tampa area who is seeking help, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. Thank you for listening to Be More Unstoppable. This podcast is produced by WEDU-PBS in West Central Florida. For more information, please visit wedu.org slash unstoppable.